When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is inflation the painful medicine the global economy needs? Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Vincent Deluard, Director of Global Macro Strategy at StoneX. Our Real Vision audience, of course, knows him as one of the first inflationistas. Lots to talk about today. Before we get started, a quick reminder, our live chat function on the Real Vision site is temporarily disabled. Please drop your questions in the comment section on the Real Vision website, in the live chat on YouTube, or at Twitter at Real Vision. Vincent, welcome back to Real Vision. Pleasure to be here, my friend. Good to be well, here. We have you here in a pretty wild time. It's been a busy 24 hours. Uh, yesterday, the Fed hiked 75 basis points, Fed funds rate uh, moving from 375, uh, moving to, uh, to 375 to 400 as the target range. Uh, during the news conference, Chair Powell advised uh, the window for a soft wind landing on the economy is narrowing. Today, Bank of England hike 75%, its largest increase since 1989, rates moving uh, from two and a quarter to 3%. Moreover, the BOE warning of the longest recession since records have been kept, the cost of living rising the fastest pace in 40 years. A whole lot happening on the central bank front, a whole lot happening on the macro front. Vincent, how do you frame it all in your in your head? Well, I mean, I've been in the uh, inflation is more resilient and higher for longer camp. So obviously uh, I thought yesterday's press conference was, was great. Uh, it was on point, it was clear. Um, he needed to, you know, I, I think the problem is the market. Uh, they need, it's like a child who needs to be constantly reminded of the same message. Uh, and, and that's what he had to do uh, again yesterday. Um, um, yeah, um, it's it's just going to be, you know, I have to stop believing in fairy tales. Like these dovish people, this is not something that the Fed ever suggested was going to happen. There's nothing in the data, at least at this point, that suggests that it should happen. Now we'll see. Maybe in a year, maybe the economy does so, slow. Maybe something breaks. But so, so the fair, the fairy tale you're talking about for people who haven't been following this as closely as you have was this notion uh, that the Fed was going to either decelerate the hiking pace uh, or even cut. That was the rumor a few months ago. Uh, it seems as though the data has basically said, nope, that's not possible, uh, Chair Powell. How do you think about that and and the market reaction that we've seen? Yeah, uh, I think there's a lot of data to, to support. Um, Powell's hawkishness. Um, you look at the, the job opening data. I mean, you had a big drop and then bounced back up. Uh, you look at um, the Atlanta Fed uh, GP now cast is, is actually pretty high, around three uh, percent. Cleveland Fed forecast for inflation is at eight point one. Uh, you get average hourly earnings. Uh, they're going by about five five and a half percent. Right now, down to people who are switching jobs, which is a very important, most important number, right? Because that's that's what we've seen is great resignation process is that workers are. You know, switching jobs to get pay raises. That's up um, record high of 7.2%, I think. 
Um, so, I mean, we'll see what the non-farm payroll number is, is on, on Friday, but my expectation is that it's going to be above 200. Uh, and if that's the case, yeah, labor market is not cooling down. And right now, the Fed is a single mandate central bank. And um, I think he's just going to have to repeat that until until the market gets the memo uh, that, you know, we are, you know, now we're still hiking. So let's not, you know, get over our skis and, and start pricing cuts that may not happen. It's a single mandate central bank with problems on both sides of the dual mandate. That's the challenge. And this is uh, very consistent with your view of the risks of stagflation. Uh, one more data point that I wanted to throw in there, uh, PCE, this is the Fed's preferred measure uh, of inflation. So uh, PCE for September, 6.2%. PCE X food and energy, this is so-called core PCE, 5.1%, significantly above the 2% rate, uh, the 2% target that they're anchored to. Yeah, and um, I thought one part that was interesting um, uh, during the press conference is that a journalist, I forget who it was, uh, Brian McGee, I, I can't remember now, uh, I asked him about uh, the lag in the um, in the core PC and in the um, the way the Fed continued shelter. And I keep getting that on, on Twitter as well. Um, and I hate that, you know. Like, yes, I understand how the Fed computes. And how the Fed computes shelter, and that there's a built in lag in, in rents that feeds into the OER. Um, so that, that's one of the, the. This is the owner equivalent rent that you're right, referring right. to. Right. The garbage argument is that basically the Fed is driving, you know, looking at the rear view mirror, you know, over tighten because uh, it is uh, not capturing the fall on real estate prices in real time. What I find funny about that argument first is that they, you know, no one was making that argument a year ago when real estate prices were, were you know, rising by 30% year over year. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the other day, the CPI is not a buffet. It's not a pick and choose your item. Um, you know, Powell had said, you know, I'm, I'm looking at core PCE, and I think he gave a pretty strong answer on, on, on rents and shelter. Uh, and, yeah, that's going to keep rising. I mean, there's a tremendous uh, momentum and inertia in these measures. You know, your core PC is basically shelter and wages, and both of these things, you know, wages are rising by five, six percent, and then you know, shelter is you're looking at zero point five, zero point six month on the month, uh, and that's going to keep happening until late 2023. So that really throws off the timing on right. rent cuts. By the way, in terms of late 2023, which you just referenced, I'm looking right now on Bloomberg at the world interest rate probability. This is the the uh, swaps that price out interest rates going forward. As we said, of course, up 75 basis points, uh, 375 to 400 basis points right now. Going forward into uh, September of 2023, implied rate uh, over 5%. Yeah. Well, th that that is the the jump from yesterday, right? Yeah. Uh, I think I think uh, before the the Fed meeting, we were at 4.9, and, and now we're about five. And then that's consistent with what he said about uh, you know revising the terminal rate higher and, and and maybe sticking with this longer. I think you know what, one one message that I think is important from from yesterday's meeting is, is maybe the uh, de-emphasize the um, you know whether it's 75 or 50 doesn't really matter the size of each individual hike. Right. What he stressed upon, which I think is kind of important, is that he's going to keep at it until he sees significant progress on the inflation front. This was the language that they added in the statement about the cumulative rate rise, this idea of trying to de-emphasize whether it's 50 basis points, 75 basis points on any particular meeting. Which is kind of funny that initially when the statement came out, the market viewed that as as dovish. Yeah. Oh, we were thinking about the cumulative impact on the so 
because we've done so much hacking already, maybe it's over. That was the exact opposite interpretation that he suggested uh, at the press conference, basically, that yep. uh, yeah, we may not do 75, but we're going to keep doing 25, and there is no hard limit at five. And I don't think there ever was a hard limit at five. I mean, this is something, again, um, something that the market kind of wanted to believe. Yeah, well, by the way, talking about things the market wanted to believe uh, and the way that this is being perceived, I wanted to take a look at our tweet to the, of the day. Uh, this coming from our CEO and co-founder, Raul Powell. It's a great tweet. I just want to read this for folks who are listening to this as a podcast. Well, it seems that the beating shall continue until morale improves. Basically, that means liquidity needs to change at the margin or we need actual confirmation of the collapse in the forward-looking data. Ho-hum, nothing to do but wait. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an accurate description of uh, uh, of what happened. And again, um, you know, I like the the phrasing, the beating so continue to the more improves. Um, <laughs> that is the goal, you know, and he said that so earlier, you know, that that's why I've been bearish on, on risk assets all year long is all you had to listen was the January press conference that I want tighter financial conditions. That's that's Fed speak for lower stock prices. And right. every time, you know, the, the Hope springs eternal, right? We, we see in the summer that this ridiculous rally we had this summer, you know, in the crypto, the, the AMC, the, the uh, Bed Bath and Beyond, the view that the, the Fed funds were able to peak at 3.3%, or, you know, it just kept clubbering on it. Okay. Rallies are self defeating because every time we have a rally, that basically gives Powell permission to. Right. Either be more hawkish or deliver greater, greater cuts. So in my in my mind, we, we move from a world where we had the Fed put that has been you know well tested since since 1998 and, and the bailout of LTCM. Every time the stock market dropped, the Fed would intervene. And the reason it could do that is because there was an inflation problem, right? So it could pursue asset prices as a policy objective. Uh, and now we have a Fed call because we have inflation. Every time um, asset prices, uh, asset markets rally, uh, financial condition ease, and the Fed has to tighten again. Uh, so we went from having a, a long put below, below us to having a short call above us. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. By the way, talking of hope springs eternal, hope may spring eternal, uh, but the business cycle does not. A trinity of stories out today that seem pretty grim to me. Uh, Amazon has expanded its hiring pause. Uh, this is a freeze now at the corporate level. Lyft has just announced uh, cuts to its workforce of 13%. Stripe, this of course, the online payments company, has just announced layoffs of 14% of its workforce. Well, and I, I mean, sure, I, I don't want to minimize the the pain for the, the people who, who are going to lose their job. Um, you know, it's, it's always very sad, but let's put that in perspective compared to the hiring, the insane hiring binge that these big tech companies had in, in 2020, 2021. I'm talking from San Francisco here. A lot of friends work in big tech companies, senior managers at Google. They told me they could not do their jobs last year because all they were doing was interviewing candidates and they had these insane growth targets. Oh, you got to double that team in, in two months. Um, so yeah, we are seeing cuts in tech, but it, it's just a tip, you know, it, it's just a fraction of what they hired. 
I mean, you know, our, our audience is probably familiar with the, you know, the, the TikTok product manager, you know, video that, uh, hey, I'm 21 year old and I'm all pretty and I'm a product manager at LinkedIn. And, you know, I do my yoga in the morning and then I go to the nap room and, go, and then I eat free food all day long. I mean, that's not a rare instance. I mean, you really had a, a massive amount of overhiring in tech. And, and and we're just undoing that. But as far as the um, the inflation story, to me, that's somewhat irrelevant. I mean, these were very unproductive employees to start with. <laughs> that funny thing with Twitter, right? You can fire 50% of the company. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, you're not really changing much. And, and, and the shortages that we have are not, you know, overpaid 25-year-old product managers working in a fancy office or from home that the shortages we, we, we have are, you know, truck drivers, farmers, right. uh, cons well, construction is going to take care of itself, I guess, restoration, hospitality. Uh, and I really doubt that uh, these, you know, 25-year-old uh, product manager making, you know, 200 grand a year for, you know, going to yoga three times a day uh, are going to revert where the jobs are actually needed. Yeah. Well, I can assure our viewers of this. Real Vision definitely does not have a nap room and there's no free yoga. Um, but I, I wanted to, you know, talk about your medium term outlook here uh, for the re uh, for 2023 as we head in uh, from both the inflation perspective, but also in terms of the expansion of the economy perspective, whether or not you see. Uh, I know that you have this stagflationary view. How significant a recession you have in your view? You know, I am not um, very uh, obsessed with, with, with GDP. Um, you know, what, what, what's my output? You know, I write research note or an institutional broker. I mean, how do you measure <laughs> whether my output is greater or less? What, what's your output? Uh, I, I think what, what, when we, once we have a, a very service-dominated economy, Measuring GDP is a lot harder. Like GDP initially was was built after the war, and you know to, to measure the war effort, how many steel bars are we producing, how many cars, that kind of made sense. But now, measuring GDP is is, is very hard. So that that's why, um, you know, breaking down what is productivity, what is inflation, what is growth, real growth is, is very difficult. Uh, so to me, the the the, the more um, relevant question is is whether consumption demand uh, is going to slow in, in as much as the Fed hopes and the market hopes, and my answer would be no. Uh, I think we're going to have a very strong consumer, a very tight labor market for quite some time, and of course that's going to go in the way of of the Fed's plan for for rapid disinflation. Uh, as far as GDP, I mean, yeah, GDP will do what GDP does. I don't know. Uh, my base case is that you know we have lower productivity as a whole. And so far, that's what it seems to be, right? Because basically GDP is flat over one year and, and we're adding about 250,000 jobs a, a month, right? So, I mean, we have more people to produce the same amount or slightly less. Uh, so probably there is a drop in productivity. I can find, think of good reasons for that to happen. I think COVID is just a tax on the economy, um, deglobalization, issues with supply chains, uh, mental health issues. Uh, the labor force in bad shape. So I could really see uh, productivity be lower. But again, that kind of brings back to this fundamental idea where we could see uh, a decoupling 
between uh, output and inflation. So let's say GDP drops by 2%, but let's say that productivity drops by 3%, which by the way is, is where we are today and we have like negative productivity. Well, it will still require 1% more people to produce that smaller output. So that means that your recession doesn't cure your labor market problem, which doesn't cure your inflation problem, which gets me back to the whole stagflation idea. So repeat that in the 70s. Uh, Vincent, one of the reasons we like you so much as a guest is that you're not just able to do the broad philosophical context and understanding of this, but you're able to get very pragmatic and tactical. Uh, you've got a holy trinity here, your three picks for the year, XLE, XLV, and XLF. These are the select sector spiders for energy, healthcare, and financials. Walk us through that view. Well, so it, it started off a quant model that we built for uh, some of our institutional clients where we're looking at a kind of a growth at a reasonable price type of factor in fundamental technicals. And, and really for two years now, energy has been the top sector, uh, which of course has helped returns tremendously, then healthcare, and then the new one that popped up this year was financial. And if you added, if you just did a one third, one third, one third each, very simple, equal weighted of these three sectors, you'd be up about 7% for the year when the market is down about 25. Um, so why- and, and that's and that's overwhelmingly the growth on XLE on energy. Right, but discrete outperformance from healthcare as well. Hmm. Uh, you know, healthcare has never been like, you know, energy's been, you know, basically energy and tech are like a new tug of war, right? Uh, these right. are the ones you notice, but discreetly you see healthcare creep up uh, because it's defensive. Uh, so it's, I think it's the second or third best performing sector. And then financials had a pretty good, good, couple of months, uh, we've seen very solid earnings from from the big banks. Um, so yeah, energy has been the big contributor, but I think it's really, you have to understand the way I built it is, is kind of as a triangle. Hmm. Um, and, and you have to think of pretty much every correction we had this year has either been about inflation, recession, or rate hikes, right? These are the, the Caribbean Silla, uh, I don't know what the third one would be, Bermuda Triangle of, of risks. Recession, rate hikes, and inflation. So what you do with this unity portfolio is you hedge each and every one of these risks. Mm. If you have inflation surprise, your energy is going to be the best performing sector. If you have fears about recession, healthcare is going to be the best performing, not utilities, by the way. Over time, healthcare is a better defensive vet than utilities, especially now that we are seeing, you know, higher rates. So utilities to be all right, this bond to a ton of operational risk. So healthcare protects you against recession, energy against inflation, and then Financials are the only sector with positive correlation with a 10-year yield. So as yields rise, the only sector that does well is financial. So whatever happens, you always have a third of your portfolio in the best performing sector. And this is why the drawdowns on this portfolio have been very limited. Uh, in the beginning of the year, you know, it was all about energy. Uh, then in the summer, we started freaking out about recession. So healthcare started doing better. And now it seems to me that, you know, rate hikes is the big fear. Um, to me, the big risk of 2023 is going to be uh, curve steepening. Uh, basically, the story of 2020. Could you say that one more time? I think you're curve right. Steepening, curve steepening. Yeah. So, the, the story of 2022 was we had to price about 500 basis points of hikes. Whoa. You know, but that, that was mostly in the front, right? I mean, the long end hasn't moved as much. You know, we have these inverted yield curves. Um, if I'm right, you know, we, we, we're getting close to the end, right? I mean, three or four, you know, 50 bits hike, and we'll be at that 5.2 that the market is looking at. Uh, so, then if I'm right about inflation being more persistent, then your long end is going to have to move up. Uh, maybe five, certainly five percent is very possible in 10 years, six, no problem, I think. Uh, yeah. And then and then you see these steeper curves, uh, which for banks is wonderful, right? Because they're 
that interest margin go up in both yeah. the borrow short and long. By the way, we, we should say for folks who aren't following this as closely as you are, two's tens curves uh, inverted right now 50 basis points uh, as we have this conversation. I also wanted to touch on something that you pointed out because I think it's such an important point. You talk about the tug of war between energy uh, and IT. I, we have a chart. This is actually uh, from today's uh, from today's um, Bloomberg IMAP GICS sector SPX performance chart, and it's pretty staggering uh, to look at this difference in performance. Uh, for those who are listening to this on podcast, I'll just describe what we're seeing here. Uh, energy on the day uh, up 2%, information technology on the day minus 3%. These huge spreads, these huge sectoral divergence uh, between these two sort of opposite poles of equity <laughs> right now. Yeah, one, um, by the way, one reason to expect more of of this divergence is, is EPS. Um, so right now the market expects energy earnings to drop by 20% next year, where it expects tech and communication services. You know how they broke the tech sector between uh, tech and community, which I think is kind of silly, but whatever. Between the two of them, they expect- This is the, the realignment of the GICs right, right. mechanism to basically separate out telecom from, from modern information technology. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so they expect this, Basically, the big tech, right? The, you know, your Facebook, Apple, uh, Google, Microsoft, to grow earnings by by fifteen percent next year, uh, while energy earnings are expected to decline by by twenty percent. And if there's one thing I've learned about analyst estimates, is you, you always want to fail, right? And it's always, you know, when the target's low, you can beat, and when the target's too high, that's when you underperform. We certainly saw that in this earnings season with, with tech earnings or communication service earnings that were low, and it's kind of hard for me to to imagine. I don't understand the logic of, of this. Basically, what the market is telling us is that you won't be able to afford $6 a gallon, but you'll still be able to buy, you know, 20 different subscription to Netflix, Hulu, HBO, uh, whatever, uh, and that you'll be buying an $80,000 Tesla. Um, to me, if, if really we have like so much economic pain that people can't fill up their tank, um, a lot of this tax spending will, will go before we touch to the, the actual central. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. By the way, talking of energy, I wanted to take a look at a clip. Uh, this is from a, a show today. Um, give me just one second. I want to set this clip up properly. This is, uh, this is Andreas Steno Larson uh, speaking with Maggie Lake on the Essential Tier today. Uh, make or break the energy crisis. Is complacency better than crisis? Let's take a look at the clip. Um, but in a base case, we should be um, we should be uh, sufficiently covered for this winter season. I think the key question is the next winter season, uh, and I think uh, that was kind of what everybody missed in the discussion earlier this summer. That um, 
throughout the early spring uh, and over the summer, Europe was actually able to tap the natural gas resources from Russia to a very large extent. Uh, we, we need to remember that Russia basically closed uh, the Nord Street pipelines towards the very end of the summer, right? Um, which was sort of also the peak um, uh, crisis uh, moment in, in, in European energy space. So next year, we don't have those Russian flows to rely on. Uh, and usually Russia delivers in between 40 and 45% of the entire natural gas consumption in Europe. Uh, right now, we've probably replaced uh, in between 40 and 45% again of that flow with liquid natural gas, but we still need to replace the other half of that Russian uh, natural gas flow with something else. So Andreas's base case is sufficient energy supply for Europe this winter, but considerably more concerns heading into next winter. Vincent, does that accord with your view? Well, the first thing I want to say about Andreas is, is just give him kudos on, on that call. Uh, you know, there was a lot of gloom and doom about the net gas market in, in Europe. You know, prices were parabolic, people would freeze to death. Uh, and, and he was consistently on the other side of that and took tremendous abuse on Twitter for it. And um, so I, I hope he enjoys uh, he enjoys his moment now. Um, um, now, as far as like the, the, the broader meaning, I'm not so sure. I mean, because, you know, this is a regional phenomenon. And in general, like oil is a global market, not gas is a regional market. So you can have like market dislocation in some place of the world without that impacting the rest of the world. I mean, for longest time, we had the opposite situation. We had very low not gas prices in, in New York, especially in the Northeast, because a lot of the gas was trending. Uh, so and, and until you can move, you know, uh, gas as, as quickly as you can move oil, which is impossible. Uh, you know, that I don't think that will matter all that much for, for energy profits. And then he still points, I think, at the end of the interview to, to what I think is, is uh, the big issue is, okay, we'll be fine. We're going to be okay this winter, but what about the next one? Uh, I think we have this um, structurally undersupplied energy market uh, that is a result of, you know, years of underinvestment. Uh, misguided policies, especially in Europe, uh, and and now we're kind of balancing it, but very artificially. Uh, we're balancing it with you know releasing eight million barrels a week from the SPR uh, by uh, having actual energy uh, rationing in Europe. You know, most places in Europe you're not allowed to to raise the the thermostat above 19 degrees, and you don't take the car. And then of course we have this uh, hidden uh, cuts in China from the from the rolling lockdowns. Um, so all in all, that probably removes 4 million barrels uh, a day in, in oil demand. Mm. Um, but we don't really have the supply for that. So at some point, um, you know, we'll run out of, of uh, SBR. Uh, China will probably reopen uh, and the, the weather will get cold in Europe. So one of my dark horse scenario in my, my more recent, recent um, report from for Sonex was, what if we have an energy shock in December? Because if you look at all these inflation scenarios, the, you know, the, the hope that, okay, inflation is going to slow down by March because March is the one year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, right? So right now we have about 30% base effect in gasoline prices. That's dragging the CPI harder. But then after March, that will that will drop off the trading 12-month window. So we should see this inflation. What, right. if, we don't, what if something else happens? And then, then you can really kiss your dovish people goodbye. Uh, and if, if we see inflation actually pick up, because right now everybody's arguing about the speed of the disinflation. Even I, even I, I'm, I'm fine. I could, I'm, 
I, I believe 9.1 was the peak for the cycle. But if we have a bad surprise, let's say uh, something bad happens in December, we have new sanctions coming on Russia from, from EU and Japan. Um, we could see, you know, uh, that is the question, who, what's going to happen first? Is the Fed going to yeah. reopen first or is China going to reopen first? If China reopens, we could see, and well, then all prices are very, I mean, we're looking at 89, we're close to 90. I mean, if, if we cross that $100 bar, I think we could see yeah. uh, that that's, I mean, that's not my baseline, uh, but that, that is a pretty nasty scenario because that means yeah. the CPI would effectively go back up. Instead right. Of it's an, it's an important counterquase and an important open question. And as you point out, most people are talking about the rate of disinflation right now. Unfortunately, we're running out of time here, but I wanted to get in one very quick question, if we could, uh, from FattyMan44 on Twitter. This is an interesting one. Uh, are emerging markets uninvestable until DXY breaks? He's, of course, referring to dollar index uh, trading right now, almost exactly 113, 112 spot 99. Are emerging markets uninvestable with Dixie this high? Hells no. Uh, I the MSCI emerging market may be investable because the MSCI emerging market is massively skewed by three big markets, which is which are China, Korea, South Korea, and Taiwan, uh, and they are suffering from you know the Chinese lockdown, the tech sell-off, and all this. But if you actually think of true, what I think of true emerging markets, uh, places like Mexico, places like mm -hmm. Brazil. I mean, I was in Brazil last week. I mean, Brazil has real rates of seven percent. Meaning the CELIC, the the, the 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 central bank's rate is seven percent above inflation. They're actually looking at rate cuts. Uh, GDP is growing. Uh, you actually have a fantastic emerging market story under the cover. Now, don't look for it in China. Look for it in Latin America. Brazil is mm. the best example. Then Mexico. Then I look at Chile, Peru, and then if you wanted some Asian exposure, India has actually held up remarkably well. Indonesia quiet success story. It's up for the year. The bonds are up for the year. Inflation is very low. Uh, so you do have kind of an emerging market revival that's happening under the hood, but you don't see it in the index because the index is all about, you know, the, the big China tech and then uh, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, which, which yeah. is getting hammered. The emerging market revival under the hood. I'm glad we were able to get that question in. Uh, Vincent, fantastic to have you here. I want to just throw out some key takeaways for our audience. Uh, inflation is the solution in Vincent's view. Inflation is the tough medicine that the economy needs to take in order to stabilize. Uh, his view broadly is stagflationary. Rate hikes is the big story, of course, and curve steepening is the theme uh, that he sees coming up next. By the way, I thought very interesting point that you made, uh, this notion about how GDP is progressively harder to measure in a services economy. Vincent, did I do it any justice? Anything you'd like to add? No, wonderful. And just remember, Holy Trinity, energy, financials, healthcare. If you did that this year, you'd be up. And I think if you do that next year, uh, you'll, you'll certainly be better off than, than buying a 60-40 portfolio, which is quite broken in my view. Vincent Delagarde, thank you so much for joining us. This was a pleasure. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.